Hello, and welcome to Stream It, the podcast where we explore movies, old favorites, new favorites, and every so often movies we love just a little bit less. This is our second bonus episode, and today we are going back to 1996 and talking about The Birdcage. As always, my name is Zachary Ortz. I am one of your co-hosts, and I am joined this week, just like each week preceding this week, by my good buddy, Matthew Watkins. Hey, Matt, how are you doing? I'm doing good. How about you, Zach? I am doing very well. I am very excited to introduce to you my friend and former teacher, if anyone ever stops being a teacher, uh, Tammy Doyle, (laughs) who we are having on this week. Hi, Tammy. Hi, Zach. Hi, Matt. So this is normally where we give guests. We haven't had a ton of guests on, but if you want to give any brief introduction about yourself or if you have anything that you would like to plug or just tell people who you are, Tammy. I would love to do that, sure. I am, as Zach said, a teacher educator. I'm a professor at Bellevue College outside Seattle and have taught high school, which is where I met Zach many, many moons ago at um, in Redmond, Washington at a performing arts academy, which was incredibly fun. I am really excited to talk about this movie and have um, decided I was going to see how many times I could get Stephen Sondheim's name into a podcast really about movies um and maddie's laughing so i think that's going to be awesome no i'm really happy to talk about this this i didn't realize and you'll hear um how this movie the birdcage intersects with me and my life and my art uh so much so thank you so much i'm excited yeah 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 we are happy to hear you here happy to have you for this why don't we go ahead and then just jump right into personal history and since you started us off Tammy what's yeah what's your history with this movie how many times have you seen it and when was the first time you saw it you know I have heard your podcast and I knew that question was coming and I knew I'd be saying this hmm I'm not really sure I am (laughs) pretty sure I must have seen it in 96 97 I'm I'm pretty sure it would have just checked every single box Oh my gosh, Robin Williams and Nathan Lane and uh, a film that's a comedy about a gay couple and there's music in it, but what is this? And they're together. And um, I'm sure it is a favorite of our daughters, which is really interesting. So between my wife and I, we have uh, three daughters, stepdaughters, uh, twins and a third one. And they remember this along with um, Tu Wong Fu as being one of their very, very favorite family movies, as a matter of fact. Uh, so we uh, must have watched it a whole lot in the in the mid, mid to late 90s when we were going down to the video store and doing that really fun Friday, Saturday night thing, um, letting everybody loose, right? We're going to pick one, you're going to pick one, you're going to mm-hmm. pick one, we're going to watch them all weekend and then go back to reckless video and take them back hopefully on time maybe not i love those days being able to stop by uh you know blockbuster or wherever and just letting everybody lose everybody bring back a film it was uh, so much fun so much fun also and then getting them with like the kids yes 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 no, no. what <laughs> yeah. are you thinking and do you see the big r so, yeah. um, <laughs> it was kind of that what do, do you think it was one of their favorites because they got to see like a gay couple on screen and that was like their parents or maybe you know the thing oh of course is that is that of course we're you know women 
Um, I, mean, I mean, obviously, but um, they knew a lot of gay men because we have a lot of gay men friends. So that was always, um, that was never weird. I, I think I was partly one of their favorites because frankly, one of the reasons why the movie I think is a favorite of many people is that there are all these sort of segments that are funny and then mm-hmm. you get the little musical moments. So, you know, if you're young and you're just going, Ooh, you know, fun guys in dresses with feathers and that's really fun too. So um, I don't know who, you know, who it's hard. I, I don't know if they could tell you actually, you know, why I think, I think the story, I think, um, yeah, I think that. And the performances are so dynamic too. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, Matt, what about you? You had not seen this before. So what sort of expectations did you have coming in? Did, were you familiar with any of the source material? Um, so I'd never seen this before. No, I was not familiar with the source material. And somehow, um, actually somehow is the wrong word. Uh, I was not really aware this film wasn't one that was on my radar. Um, and so I was thinking through these things. I was 12 years old in 96 when this film came out. And You know, I was growing up at that time period, 12 years old, in a very conservative community. And um, this is the kind of film that I really wish that I had been able to see. But it's one that I suspect that was one that was just pushed off the side and that was not allowed to be seen, if that makes sense. So... I, I really wish that I'd seen it, you know, as a 12 year old bisexual kid growing up in a very uh, conservative com- community, uh, this would have been a life changing film for me. And so I really regret not having uh, seen it beforehand. Maddie, I totally, totally understand that when I w- when I saw Fun Home on Broadway, mm-hmm. um, besides the fact I loved it so much, I was overwhelmed with the idea that girls would see this or hear it. And what that would have meant to me, uh, yeah, as a 10-year-old, as, as a 12-year-old. To, yeah, right, right. You, you don't know your choices till you know your choices. You just know there's something that exactly skew. Yeah. Exactly. And it was, uh, you know, th- that was a really, really hard year for me. Um, be, and because of exactly these things. Uh, I was in school. I was a 12-year-old. Uh, and I did not fit in with the... Mm-hmm. With the uh, boys at school and the way they performed masculinity. And so that like, it was really hard, a lot of traumatizing experiences during that time period. And so Robin Williams was one of my favorite actors at the time period. If I'd seen him performing this and seen Nathan Lane's performance, um, I just, I would have loved to have had that experience. Did you see so. Mrs. Doubtfire? Do you remember seeing Mrs. Doubtfire? Yes, I remember seeing okay. Mrs. Doubtfire. So, yeah. so that's interesting. So like that was an so. okay thing because... He's pretending to be a straight woman. I, I find that fascinating. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a, uh, I, I don't really understand the logic behind, you know, a lot of the, the ways um, those kinds of things get chosen. Though we'll, we can get into uh, some of this at the time period, but there were some changes in my community at the time period that uh, probably affected uh, this as well. So that's a little bit of my personal, personal history, history with the film. Yeah, um, and I'll give mine really quickly. But before I do that, uh, Fun Home is I there's a song in that show, which I'm guessing is one of the moments that spoke to you, Tammy. And just as like we were talking before that I was listening to Lacage earlier today and just thinking about this movie and thinking about the impact that it would have had. I also put 
listened to Ring of Keys from Fun Home today when I was on my walk during my lunch break. And I'll put a link to it in the show notes because I don't know how much overlap there is with our the people who listen to our podcast and the musical theater community. But it's a song where this young girl who grows up to be Alison Bechdel sees a lesbian or someone who she assumes is a lesbian for the first time. And it's just like, it captures that feeling of, oh, that's me in a way. Like it just gives me chills right now thinking about it. It's a really great song. And so I I hope people will listen to it. Um, My history with this movie. So I was trying to figure it out. My sister and I watched it at a New Year's Eve party, I believe in 1999 or maybe 2000. I I think it was 99 into 2000 because I think it was before Y2K and it was definitely before high school. So I watched it then and I have not seen it since. So in many ways, it is like I got to watch this movie for the first time. The only difference is is that I also know the musical La Caja Faux that is based on the same play that this movie is based on. I know that extremely well. It's a title that the company that I work for licenses. I've worked on the music materials. I've seen it. Maybe I've just seen it once, but I've listened to the cast album a lot. So pretty familiar with the story beats, but not really at all familiar with exactly how it falls in this movie. So it was, yeah, it was a nice one to revisit. We So this film came out March 8th in 1996. We've talked about 1996 on the podcast pretty recently. We just covered Mission Impossible. So I pulled a few different various dates from 96 around gay rights and the struggle to get gay rights and did a little bit of research into that. But because we have Tammy, I don't know. Can you talk a little bit about how it felt being a gay person in 96 it sounds like when this movie came out it didn't have a huge impact on you or did it um so yeah i yeah no i can't talk about that because i I was just talking to a young person today actually i have um for a ton of reasons been both blessed and decided to live in places that are gay friendly if, if one's looking for it so i grew up in san francisco moved to seattle um my wife and i got married in 1995 in a pretty big ceremony in a church, right? So, so, I mean, you know, so the whole idea of um, purposely surrounding myself and we sent our kids to school at places where the person I was co-parenting with and I could sit with the principal every year and sort of nicely say, so we just, we don't expect that you will, um, that you will allow our children to have their families, but we actually expect you to encourage the rest of the children that, you know, gay parenting. So we were in those environments. I um, completely understand that, that that is a rarefied world. And I, again, am thankful and privileged to have been able to choose it. But I, the thing that it really brought me back to was to rethink about AIDS, which sometimes I think we think, oh, we're kind of out of that. And uh, I mean, I knew one of the very first AIDS cases in, in San Francisco, uh, an actor. And I, I was, I don't know if you remember, at the very beginning, the very first scene with the Kiwis, when she says, we've been sleeping together. And the first thing out of her mom's mouth is, has he been tested? And she says, yes, and so have I. Mm-hmm. And they don't ever mention what it's for, and they don't mention it again. And I actually read a review when it hit its anniversary 
uh, the movie um, a couple years ago, uh, where someone said an agent talked about it. I just like wanted to go, oh my God, did you miss it? Or did you just not know that's what they're talking about? Because yeah. at the time, everybody would have known about that. Mm-hmm. And every gay person would have known you don't have to talk about it. But the fact that this sort of conservative straight mom, which that was really great. I think that's a great Mike Nichols, Wayne May moment, yeah. sort of knew enough to job one is keep your daughter safe. <laughs> job two, which we'll find out later, you know, is <laughs> yeah. to sort of support your husband's, you know, ridiculous agenda. So, um, so I, I think it's, I think it's sort of, you know, hit me there. The kids were born, my kids were born in 88, the twins. And um, so things had been pretty great, but no, I mean, it really hit me again. And of course, I love that we're talking about this now, right when potentially our, our world might be on fire again within a year. Um, that, I the have fact notes that, about that you know, for sure. Yeah, yeah. The fact that any any marriage rights could be rolled back, I, I I just sit here and want to get on the rocking chair and go, ah, that's just ridiculous. Um, but you know, I, that's our anniversary. That's when we got married. But of course, that's not really when we legally got married. That was, you know, decades later. So, um, so yeah, that's my sort of main, main hit. Uh, one of the, when, when we get talking about the movie, one of the scenes I want to talk about is actually not a scene that's talked about a lot, but I want to talk about it because of what Nichols and May decided to do in terms of showing what a loving community looks like. Mm-hmm. And just as a side note, there's a great line in uh, Kushner's Angels in America where Roy Cohn, right, the baddest baddie of the baddies, is trying to get tickets for someone on the phone to Cats, which he abhors, but does it for them. They're from out of town. But then basically says, get them tickets to the cause, best family show <laughs> on Broadway. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I mean, or maybe just says best show on Broadway, but it just, you know, kind of kills me that that, that that is so interesting. So yeah, yeah, that's my. Uh, interestingly, I went back and watched um, the French film when I was all excited. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. years and years and years ago, and I hated it because um, they're so mean to each other, which does not happen oh, in the yeah. film nor in the musical. The musical, I think, is much more like the Birdcage than it is like the original French film. Yeah, so we we should say the. I believe everything is based on an original French French farce from. Play. Yeah. yeah, a play from 68. I didn't actually. Yeah, call it. Quite, a, quite a while ago. But called Le Cage au Faux. And then from that property, there's a French movie, also Le Cage au Faux, mm-hmm. the Broadway musical from 1984, and then this movie from 1996. So this story has been told a lot of times. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And the. Yeah, can the and there was another Broadway revival in what 2013, I think. Mm-hmm. So it it has made its way around. I my so I mean, Tammy, you were maybe the first gay person that I knew, or at least the first gay person mm-hmm. that I knew that I knew. And it like I've spent a lot of time relitigating with some of my coworkers and some of my friends, like I didn't necessarily even realize that like homophobia existed until I went to college because I had a very similar experience to you where I grew up in a very liberal community. I had liberal parents. And when you were my teacher, it was like, I think at some point it took us a little bit of time just to figure out, like you said, partner instead of 
husband. And it was like, oh, that means she's with a woman. But it wasn't ever something that was like a big deal to us. So it was something that I first learned about, I think when, um, what was the prop eight? Was that the one that yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh, I didn't, I don't think I actually even realized that <laughs> the ability to not get married was on the table. I it, like, it didn't really make a ton of sense to me. Uh, so, but this movie, the 1996 surrounds a lot of not great stuff for gay rights. So some of the stuff that I had pulled, this happens in the middle of the Clinton presidency, obviously. And so Clinton has a couple pretty big things that he did in 1994. Don't ask, don't tell happened, which was, or happened, was passed, was enacted. And that's the law that said that I I don't actually have a good sense, but the Clintons have since tried to spin it as a good thing that they did for gay people, that it was the best they could do at the time. Like gay people couldn't serve in the military. And so the idea they claim here was it allows them to serve in the military. It's just, they can't ever tell anyone that they're gay. Yeah. And that's referenced in the film. Well, it's just weird. So it meant that someone else couldn't, as I understand it, it meant someone couldn't tap you out. But if you were caught, it was, it was it was it was bad. There's a really great thing in um, a great moment in Before Stonewall, which is an amazing documentary if um, you haven't seen it, where um, Eisenhower's aide de camp, like like personal assistant secretary person, mm-hmm. um, he calls her into the office and basically says, "So we've just heard from um, this is the end of World War II, right? We've just gotten from Washington. Or maybe it's after that. We're supposed to um, cleanse the wax, the waves, the women's core." of lesbians and he's just not even thinking. And she looks at him evidently and says, sir, the first letter on your desk will be mine. And he literally said, thank you. Let her leave the room and never mentioned it again because he was a smart commander, you know? So just didn't, you know, didn't evidently go back up the chain and say it's stupid. He just didn't do it. Yeah, it's a, you know. Uh, I remember at the time period in 1994, my dad was in the military up until 1993. And so I, I knew that he knew LGBT people in the military at the time period. So, Mm -hmm. and it's just, you know, people are in the closet. So it's not, it's, uh, uh, people are, uh, there, they're serving in the military and the putting this law into place at the time period, it definitely felt to me like it was just saying the closet had, like making the closet stronger, if that makes sense, uh, reinforcing the the iron bars, you could say. And it, this idea of like the don't ask, don't tell part, it, the don't tell part was definitely enforced in, in my perspective a lot more harshly than the don't ask part. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those are some of my perspectives. I don't know. I'm, I was a child at the time. So I'm only giving my perspective that I have from there. Well, and the fact that they were, that they put in the film, I just want to keep talking about how brilliant Elaine May is, um, yeah. Yeah. you know, yeah. that she got it in, she got it in again in a comic way. I mean, Nathan, mm-hmm. Clay, you know, Oh, who'd wear those uniforms? You know, yeah. did you know Alexander the Great was a faggot? I mean, I, those are great. Those are great lines. Yeah. They're great. 
so yeah. Yeah, it's interesting what you were saying, Zach, about that you didn't know you didn't know. I, uh, as I said, grew up in San Francisco in a pretty privileged Tony part of the city. Mm-hmm. The pedi- our pediatrician was gay. I found out our parents all knew. My parents were, I, I'm just going to sort of mention, pretty conservative. My mom was homophobic, et cetera, et cetera, down the line. She knew he was gay. And when I asked her once, how, you know, how did, what did that all mean to you? And she said, she goes, he was amazing, but he, it was him. So just like so many things, you make it an individual connection and all this other stuff goes away. Yeah. And, yeah. and I like, I wish this were, there's so much in this movie that feels topical now, unfortunately, so much of the politics has not really seemed to age at all. And it's unfortunate that this idea is now being relitigated with the don't say gay bill, like how much representation matters and how much being able to see yourself matters and how much like just being able to have a teacher who is, who represents something that you might not otherwise see, whether it's you or whether it's not you. And yeah, I can say I got in trouble at two different places where I was teaching in the 90s, mm-hmm. I was teaching teenagers, and in both places, um, one of which still exists here in the area, I was told, don't tell them, you know, don't talk about your weekend in your life, don't tell them you're gay. And in both cases, I said, I, I can't think of a group that needs it more than these, this group, not this group, but right. you know, these 13 to 17 year olds, I just, are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, they they need to know more than anybody that there's just somebody yeah. out there said, I'm not making them gay. I mean, you know, please. But it was that and it was because in both cases, the leader of those groups were getting crap from other parents. I don't think either of these people yeah. actually didn't care if I said anything. I really believe that they um they were stuck between their clients. I, I totally understand. And I've had that occur a couple of times for me as a teacher. I'm a teacher now. Um, and it's never been for me, the conversation of don't say that you're bisexual or anything like that, but it's been, oh, you know, kids have found information out and you should be more, uh, you should be like your social media, the, the kids, uh, shouldn't ever see anything that's on the, those kinds of conversations, even though other teachers are, um, profoundly active on social media, yeah, um, so those kinds of things. And every time it's because um, I mentioned on social media being bisexual and then a parent saw it and it makes it way, its way back. And um, so yeah, I understand that as well. And I've also seen so many kids where just seeing a person that is like them has such a big impact on them. And it's, it was, it it's so important to me to be that person because I didn't have anyone like that in my entire education. I've never had a gay teacher that I knew of that was, that was out. And I really wish I had because, you know, I needed to see that. And it took a long time to figure all those things out because of just the lack of seeing that kind of representation. Well, and the thing too is, is why I didn't like French, is that it's such a loving, when we, when we really get talking about it, not to get too far from the comedy, um, but, you know, t- teen and preteen, which turns my stomach, suicide is way up. So, you know, that's like a real thing. And yes, you know, yes, that's based on the fact it's a comedy, but loving people doing loving things for each other, which is by the end of the day, um, happens in this film. 
um, uh, is in, across the board is that's the message, you know, I mean, this mm. is a love is love is love film. Yes. So yes, I think, and I do think, and you're sort of, Oh, does the birdcage stop someone from killing themselves? I think the answer actually is yes. As a matter of fact, yes, it does. Because sometimes all you need, um, do you remember the, the, it gets better campaign? Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah, was, yeah. that was profound. I actually was starting to think that should come back. I think that that was sometimes simplicity, I think can kill stuff. But in that case, I sort of felt like, no, that was great. That simplicity was great because I think sometimes you can't see anything more than just trust people who have made it over the hurdle and are in their thirties and forties, um, that it gets better. may not get better the way you think or the way you see or for a while. And I think movies like this show that. Yeah. I I was thinking about that because I had, found a little article and I'll put it in the show notes that went through sort of like the timeline of gay representation in films and almost exclusively up to this point, maybe with the exception of Rocky Horror Picture Show, although I don't know that that's a great example. (laughs) And then I think there was one other, but almost exclusively gay people were not shown happy in movies. They're like, they were almost always tragic figures and just uh, what three years before this, you had Philadelphia, which yeah. was a huge movie. And uh, Tom, yeah. Tom Hanks won the Oscar for it. Yes, he did. Yes. He won the Oscar, but the movie did not win the Oscar. But then this movie just shows gay, like two gay guys living a very successful and happily coupled life. Mm-hmm. And it, I was kind of astonished this article didn't even mention the birdcage because it seemed so starkly different from everything that had been coming before it. Did it talk about Tu Wong Fu? It did. Yes, it did have okay. that. Because I think Priscilla and Tu Wong Fu, but, and that's a lot about self-worth. This is specifically, I think the place where people, I think the waters divide around parenting. Um, which is what this is about, mm-hmm. yeah. not just loving the parenting. I have found in my experience that either having kids, I mean, I lost a very good friend over that who was fine that I was gay. And as soon as I sort of told her that we were having children, whatever, that was the Rubicon she couldn't cross. Um, Maybe not that usually, good of a friend. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, and no longer. But, um, but, but it, you know, a friend from my kidhood, right? It's that, that kind right. of friend. Yeah. But at the same time, I have seen people... Um, with me and, and in other venues, which is always tougher, you know, when they're two guys, be incredibly loving and giving when you just see people love a child. Mm-hmm. So that's where I think birdcage is so important is because it, it's, it's that. And I think that's the place where the musical, as a matter of fact, because we have to take time out to sing a song, actually underscores that almost better than the movie. Because mm-hmm. it's a long, I mean, it's a great scene in the movie, but in the musical, it has to be a song which has to take time. And then we get a reprise. Yay. Hey, Matt, did you want to talk about 96 quickly? I have a couple other things, but they'll sort of segue us into personnel. So, yeah, just uh, really quickly, I remember in 96, just my experience of it um, that year, there was a lot of like a lot of discussion of. LGBT issues. The year afterwards is when Ellen came out on TV, mm-hmm. which is a, a thing that I remember very vividly when it happened. 
And in my community, there was a lot because uh, I grew up in a very conservative community, not only that, but in a Mormon community. And in 1995, the end of 1995, there was a thing, a document called the Family of Proclamation to the World, which is like a uh, basically um, a manifesto that marriage is supposed to be between a man and a woman. And so that was in, in my community. I remember that specifically this year was when it felt like the entire community clamped down on LGBT people a lot more than it had previously. And so I think that's what it made it particularly difficult at the time period. Uh, and so around all these same issues and the movement that was happening, I, I think that's one thing that stands out vividly in my mind from the time period. Yeah, well, and the other thing that happened this year was the Defense of Marriage Act, which, yeah. and I didn't realize this until I was researching, but I think in 1990 or 91, there was a state Supreme Court case in Hawaii where there were three gay couples who were suing to try and get married. And then so I didn't know any of this history, but then that sort of wended its way through the courts and didn't end up getting decided until 2000, I think. But a bunch of other lawsuits like that began to crop up, which is why the Defensive Marriage Act ended up happening in 1996. And I, I guess I should say, I don't know if a, the Defensive Marriage Act was ensuring that it was between a man and a woman. So it was making sure that gay people, it was codifying at the federal level that gay people could not get married until it was, when was it repealed actually? Was it, it was repealed during the Obama years? Yeah, because we, we, it was state by state. That's how I remember is the state by state because it was state by state. And then because we were domestic partners then we went down to California to get married. And then when we got back up here, I didn't want to get married here. I delighted in the fact that federally it would just roll over. I'd like that mm -hmm. company, the country. And, you know, the reason why it's so important now is because all those steps is what will happen with abortion rights. I mean, it's, it's going to go the exact or not same way, which I think is fascinating. Um, yeah, fascinating but, is a word for it. <laughs> all those other words, all those other <laughs> are coming to my mind. But again, we're talking about a, um, a comedy. So. A comedy, yeah. And then the last thing that I pulled, and this is not a happy thing, but it happened two years after this movie came out, which is on October 6th, 1998, Matthew Shepard was killed near Laramie. And the only reason I mention that is because Nathan Lane, who is now an openly gay person and was at the time out to his parents, but not out to the broader world, he, he, that was the inciting incident for him to come out to the rest of the world. So he was not out when this movie was made in 96. He didn't come out until early 99. What? Yeah. Though from what I understand, he was out to his family and all of his friends and basically everyone they worked on the production with, but not to the media overall landscape. Was that everybody in Manhattan? I mean, is that? Yeah, what yeah exactly. Yeah. So uh, every everybody in Manhattan knew, um, but Oprah didn't know. So, you know, that's that's. No, no, that is. But that, but that is huge. I mean, making those yeah. those declarations, especially when you're when someone on the way up i um yeah he wasn't uh, nathan lane yet he well yeah so i so my 
I, I don't know. Go, can we se- segue to a little uh, another personal thing? Yeah, yeah, so of course. My weird, all my weird places where, um, if you were going to do a murder board, all the pieces of yarn would come to birdcage for me. Um, <laughs> I've met Robin Robin Williams, and he, um, because he was a stand up comic in San Francisco, and uh, I mean, no more than met him, but met him, and I've seen him in you know in a small in a small place, and I saw Nathan Lane. And laughter on the 23rd floor. I've not been to New York for it. I've been to Broadway way less than I would like. Um, but I was there in 93 and I saw him in preview and laughter on the 23rd floor, which is the show that Mike Nichols saw him in to cast him in this. When um, and maybe everybody knows this, I love that Steve Martin was supposed to star in the Robin Williams role. Oh, geez. Robin it's Williams nice. was supposed to do the Nathan Lane role when, when Steve Martin backed out, maybe to do Father of the Bride. I hope not to do Sergeant Bilko saying Father of the Bride is a funny movie. Um, mm-hmm. And then Mike, um, evidently the story goes that Robin Williams, because he's a smart man, basically said, I've just done drag. So how about not? And I think this was brilliant. And um, I've read different stories about how Mike Nichols got to Nathan Lane. Robin Williams suggested him. I believe that he saw him on stage. And then Nathan Lane said no a number of yeah. times. Oh, um, I didn't get that far in yeah. the story. Wow. Oh, yeah. Multiple times said no. Yeah. So evidently, if the story is right, Mike Nichols talked to Scott Rudin. So I don't know if this is true, but I read oh, wow. once. This is what I And somehow well. they worked forum around. So I find it so yeah. interesting when everybody's talking about, of course, Robin Williams and his improv and his messing around. And all I can think of was, like, let's remember he's starting opposite the man who played Pseudolus. Right. So when was the know, forum revival? In ninety, same year, like the yeah, same year, year right oh, wow. there. So wow. funny thing happened on the way to the forum. Oh, by Stephen Sondheim. There's, I think, two. Um, yeah. Pseudoes, especially in the revivals, Pseudoes, uh gets a pretty free reign. That's I don't know. Don't think mm-hmm. that's original. So Nathan Lane, Whoopi Goldberg, we're definitely talking. To, I just love that story. So. um so yeah, and so then just everything that that was so much fun for me because I was in New York and I had taken a much longer walk as than I expected from somewhere to somewhere and it was something like quarter to two and I went to TKTS where there was no line and I said if you can point to the marquee sell me a ticket I, I like I just I just knew because I was getting lost so much and they pointed and I went no Simon great and I was the only guy in the audience I promise you it was a matinee on a Wednesday. <laughs> Um, and um, which was great because lots of times, especially with that play, I didn't get all those jokes. And the cast was unbelievable, but centered around Nathan Lane's character. And yeah, so I watching the movie again, realizing, you know, the brilliance of a mid-career Robin Williams and a pretty early career Nathan Lane, and certainly I think his first film or close to his first film. It was his. It was his breakout for sure. They both had. So he had done Lion King already but so, he wasn't yeah that that's just that's just talking but this was this was the thing that made people know him yeah well and evidently i read that dan futterman had been in fisher king which is a favorite movie of mine with robin williams and that had been a couple of years earlier so futterman must have been a baby oh yeah yeah, yeah. um so- but yeah, there seems to be a lot, and maybe because I do so much theater where people do play older, but a lot made of how old Cuesta Fockhart was, Cuesta Fockhart, because yeah. I, I bought she was 18. Although as oh. a parent, I oh, was yeah, all about her. Sure. Don't get me wrong. Um, oh, I didn't notice at all. No, yeah. she was 31. Yeah. <laughs> really? 
Yeah, she's, she's still 31. Like 41. <laughs> oh my goodness. No, yeah, I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about Robin Williams. This Robin Williams is obviously Robin Williams. At this point, he was a household name. So he had done those couple of episodes of Happy Days in 77, 78, and then did Mork and Mindy for four years, 78 to 82. And then, you know, sort of did various movies, but then legitimized himself in 1987 with Good Morning Vietnam, which I think he got an Oscar nom for. Mm -hmm. And then finally won his Oscar in 89 for Dead Poets Society. Hmm. Right? I don't think he won in... I don't think he won for Dead Poets Society. I think that he won for Goodwill Hunting. Is this... Oh, Oh, yeah. Okay. I think you're right. I, I took well, his work there and in Awakenings, I thought was amazing. I took insufficient notes. Uh, and then in, in 91, he did Hook, which I, I read that he actually credits working with Dustin Hoffman on that film as something that allowed him to work on his range and sort of have a greater depth of character, something that I think is actually really present in this movie. And one of the things that really makes this movie hum if he wasn't didn't have those moments of restraint this movie would not work mm-hmm, at all mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and then just a few more movies aladdin in 92 mrs doubtfire in 93 and jumanji in 95 and of course i assume most people know this but i mean robin williams was extremely beloved and died all all together too soon he committed suicide uh just four or five years ago maybe three or four years ago so the we have mentioned suicide a couple times in this episode and we will probably mention it a couple times again but just know that if you need help there is help available and the i'll put the suicide prevention hotline number into the show notes we any person lost to suicide is one too many and anyone who's listening to this podcast counts just the same as a beloved icon like Robin Williams. So. Well said, well said. You know, I remember vividly when I found out that Robin Williams had passed away. Mm -hmm. Um, It was, I was visiting um, with my brother and I was sleeping like on the floor and I just like pulled out my phone to see what was going on. And then I saw it trending and saw that. And I mean, it was really affecting to me. Um, I went back and looked through uh, the list of the actors that I have seen the most in films. Uh, and what I came up with is Tom Hanks is the most, and then Matt Damon, and then Robin Williams is my third most seen uh, actor in films. I've seen over 20 of his films. Uh, and I'd seen a lot of them at the time period. Not only that, but I'd also watched uh, Mork and Mindy, which was uh, a show that I loved with uh, watching with my parents. So that impacted me me a lot and is a, a really important actor to my perception of movies. Oh, and and comedy, that deep pathos yeah. that is comedy. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And one of the things that I don't think of Robin Williams this way, really, but one of the things that surprised me when I was watching this movie, and he's not like super youthful in this movie, but he is very attractive in this movie. He's a very good looking man, which just was not part of my memory of him. You should have seen him in Mork and Mindy. 
he's you know he's gorgeous in that so oh, i mean now now i want to go back and watch watch some older yeah. stuff of his so okay i think yeah. i would use the word cute rather than gorgeous but okay yeah, I just I loved his hair. Like, I don't know. So yeah. <laughs> but oh yeah, no, no, for sure. I think I think it's true though. He has played a lot of characters where he uh buys into the casual slovenness mm-hmm. not a word. Mm-hmm. Um and in this and and he and he didn't. I actually breathed a wonderful uh, little breath when toward the end of the film he uh has gotten kind of tightened his apparel and then he loosens up into what is his apparel, and I realized that I recognize oh right now you're now you're who you're supposed to be your character back to um you know being you and that it matters and that it matters this whole movie it matters what you wear it matters that you get to make Mm -hmm. the choice of what you put on your body and it's not just window dressing or it is exactly that to what's really in the window yeah and was it so was it a big deal to have two people who had starred in disney movies play openly gay characters or was that just because that's what I know them from but that's just because that's when I grew up like I know Robin Williams first and foremost is Jeannie and (laughs) um, Nathan Lane is Timon Nathan Lane being Timon doesn't have much I mean when you say it I remember that he is it but that doesn't have as much it doesn't yeah Jeannie for sure but he'd done so much before that I guess for me got it yeah yeah my age POV that's an artifact that that I have created. Uh, who who else do we want to talk about here? This casting just goes on and on and it on. Is, oh it is unreal. It is unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, Such a great have cast. People who are you know, I mean, Clarissa Flockhart is going to become Ally McBeal. That's not who she is now. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you know, the movie's been you know again because Mike Nichols is a genius. Um, you know, she's going to get Ally McBeal. She either got it while she was filming or got it right after, and then. I have a soft spot for Dan Futterman and um, (laughs) what he's done. Um, But just, I mean, Gene Hackman, I mean, I don't know if anyone else, but Mike Nichols could have done this, right? Getting Gene Hackman and Diane Wiest, who were both at the top of their game in the mid 90s. She's so good in this movie too. Both of them are, yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, they are. He gets to kind of be a schlep and she's this sort of, you know, tight ass. And then, yeah. um, well, Christine Baranski, you know, we just do a whole show. Can we do a whole show on Christine? <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, that's, that's bonus episode 2A. Two, two because um, because she's amazing. And, um, and Hank Azaria, who, uh, you know, again, someone who is as gifted a comic as he is a dramatic actor. I, I love and adore him. And he's so damn funny. And, um, oh, my God. Yeah, so I don't know. I just think, um, but, you know... It is amazing, and you do need those everybody to step up. But if you don't have that combination or that connection between the two of them, and I must say, as much as I love Robin Williams, and I do, I find him to be someone who acts in kind of a solitary way. I mean, all, most of the films in which I love mm. him, he's not part of a couple. Dead Poets and Good Morning and Awakenings and Hook, and he has trouble connecting his character has trouble connecting to the people around him. That's his journey. And in this movie, it can't be that. So yeah. my respect goes higher to everyone who worked on the film because I don't think that's necessarily in his wheelhouse, actually. Oh, interesting. That, that's a good point because they, I mean, I, I kept thinking when I was watching it, like, 
oh, it is just so lucky we have indelibly forever these scenes between Robin Williams and Nathan Lane working so perfectly off of each other and directed and caught on film in such a way that just like you can feel the scene. It doesn't feel like it's edited. It feels like you're seeing real actors work off of each other. And it's, it's a treat. It's a time capsule, especially now that, you know, Robin Williams, we don't get more of him, you know? And because they have to play characters who've been together a long time. Yeah. Something yeah. that I think you watch Gene yeah. Hackman and Diane and we, in my opinion, kind of fall into Like they get that. They know right. that. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But these two men, you know, have to establish a deep love that's been maybe sort of taken for granted, you know, where they're giving, but they're also kind of stressed at each other, you know, you know a, a marriage, basically. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I loved how real their relationship was, and uh, we, we've talked a bunch about Nathan Lane, but I wanted to, to mention him specifically here because for me, he just is—he's so good in this film, and really makes everything work. His his performance is just so good from top to bottom, and I I just was so thrown when I went back to look at the Oscars and uh, the. You know, he just got completely ignored for basically every everything in the Academy at the time period for this film. And he, he made everything work for me. Did you notice that they won the um, SAG Award for Best yeah. Ensemble? I love the SAG Award. Best Ensemble. Oh, I, yeah. I Best didn't ensemble. That. yeah. 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 I think that um, I think that's that's absolutely true in terms of their, you know, making it making it real and making the connection. The only one Oscar nomination for this film, I think, which was for the set design or the production design. Which was fabulous. Which is, yeah. It, yeah, it really is. So huge, it's a huge it's part, of the, part of the comedy. Yeah, the other thing, too, I think, is that not always when you have two improvisers, I said this backwards, does it work? It doesn't always work to yeah. throw, you know, basically <laughs> two non-straight men, which is what they both are, together. Mm-hmm. And I guess it did work. And the stories that I read is that Mike Nichols set down that hard and fast rule that we will do one take completely to script with joy in our hearts for every single take. And then from what I can gather, they didn't go nuts because people seem to have been able to actually document the, you know, the improvisation. So which means whole scenes did not go off the rails. And to me, that shows a ton of respect and a director who can, you know, know, know his cast, work the room, let them do what they're doing, but, keep the eye on the end of the train yeah and a lot of respect for elaine may's script which is something that doesn't always happen in film that you know they they say i think we've said on the show before the stage is a script writer's medium and film is the director's medium but as i say it might be a moment to talk about who elaine may and Mike nichols and who nichols and may are yeah because yeah. they started on stage together because since you yeah. said that i think that that yeah i went through and watched a bunch of their old performances together today um like nice. and elaine may and oh my goodness they're they, it was a hoot they're they're great just such good comedic timing and they're the writing of their of their skits that they do together is so on point and so nuanced. And the way that Elaine May uh, delivers uh, her ironic lines is <laughs> she does it in such a such a like great deadpan way that's just hilarious. Every scene that they have together. 
Well, and I think, I guess I don't know about Gene Hackman and Diane Weiss, but at least having the four of them with stage experience is one of the things that gets everybody in the same world for this movie. And especially one that's based on a farce and has so many farcical elements, something that you don't commonly see in film in, in the same way. It, well, even Calista Flockhart had stage experience. Oh, did she, she? Yeah, she was discovered on, I can't remember what, what it was, but uh, that's where Mike Nichols discovered her was on stage. That doesn't surprise me. I just didn't didn't know for sure. That's totally cool. And then I, oh, Matt, you had at least one more person that you wanted to talk about. Yeah, I just wanted to mention quickly Emmanuel Lubezki, who does the cinematography on this one. And most of the cinematography in this film is... Uh, you know, most most of it is just putting the camera where it's going to be and letting the scene play out and just capturing these uh, performances from these characters. But there is this really fascinating long shot that they do through the club at the beginning that I love so much. And so I went to look him up and uh, he does a lot of these. He did the film Gravity, Birdman, and then is also known for Children of Men, which three of the just best cinematography that I've seen. And all of those have these really long shots, especially Birdman that has like the whole film is edited together as if it were an entire long shot. And I don't know. I, I thought, I thought it was interesting to see his performance at the beginning of his career and knowing where it would go and the way those elements would become a part of his oeuvre. Yeah. And We'll maybe this would be better suited for the advice to first time viewers, but don't yeah, don't turn this movie on and then ignore the opening credits because that first two and a half minutes is it's not a real one, but it's a it's a fake one. And so yeah. definitely like definitely pay attention because it is something you could easily just miss if you're just dancing to the music and it's very, very, very cool. Well, and for totally different reasons don't replenish your drink during the closing credits. Yeah. Which is the epilogue of the story. Um, well, is this the time to talk about Stephen Sondheim three and Jonathan Tunick? Uh, yeah. That's who I was going to talk about, talk Excellent. about next. And I, th- there cannot be that many people in the world. It might be just me who get the experience of watching this film not knowing that Stephen Sondheim wrote the song, well, wrote a song and then had two other songs in the movie because they are songs that people don't know. But the way my jaw dropped on the floor when I heard Folly's lyrics for for the first time, I was like, how how in the world? And then he has, you know, the the song that he writes in the middle for the scene that we're going to talk about. So just absolutely wild and the crazy thing about Stephen Sondheim writing for this movie and I assume it's just coincidence but the La Cage aux Folles in 1984 was up against Sunday in the Park with George now one of 10 musicals to win a Pulitzer Prize and from everything I've heard everything I've read the expectation was that Sunday in the Park with George would win best musical that year and it doesn't. La Caja Full wins Best Musical. And Jerry Herman essentially gets on stage and takes a dig at uh, Stephen Sondheim in his Tony acceptance speech. Which Meredith Wilson did not in 1957. <laughs> when Music Man beat West Side Story. Let's just say this has happened before, right? <laughs> I, th- 
Jerry Herman, I've seen, I believe he's denied that he meant it as a dig at Stephen Sondheim. Uh, but what he says is, or do you want to say, Tammy, do you know? No, no, I don't know. I'm oh, listening to all yes, he, he says there's been an, a rumor going around that the Broadway show tune is dead, but it is alive and well at the Palace Theater, which right. I of do course is that. where Lacage was running. And so it's just like this weird happenstance, this show that had a very public dig at Sondheim, then he comes in to write the music for the, or write a song and then allow his songs to be used for the movie. So, and it isn't, it is a, a hum of a hummabo hummable song. Um, it is, yeah. I looked up that he would have written right after finishing Passion. Uh, yes, that's right. Yeah. Which is, which is, which is interesting. I don't know. I knew, um, Foxtrot and Love is in the Air from all of the, you know, unsung Sondheim. Right, right, right. Me too. That's where I know them from. Yeah. But, but I love, I love that other song. I love the fact that they set up Robin Williams as the owner composer because we watch him mm-hmm. write that song, which I'd forgotten about till I rewatched it. That was so cool. One of the things that I think is so cool is that Jonathan Tunick wrote some of the score and I love it. Uh, yeah. I, I didn't know him as an arranger, orchestrator. I mean, you know, as Sondheim's guy. And um, I really like the, I actually, as a matter of fact, I love the little repetitive theme that goes on that is sort of our moving, moving right along, I think, I, which I always call those kinds of ty- types of music in uh, songs after the great Muppet song. Because <laughs> um, it feels like that. It's the little, we're going to go out and we're, things are going to go forward. I'm going to have to go back and listen more closely to the score because, uh, and this I think is overall a compliment. It's, it's just, I didn't notice the score standing out too much. And so I'm going to have to go back and listen to it because well, I am, I am guessing that when Jonathan Tunick's name showed up, you did not think, Oh, there's the greatest Broadway orchestrator of the last 40 years. The way <laughs> no, I, I do. So <laughs> that's great. And, and, and did Mike Nichols get, him on and he said Stephen are you not busy tonight write a song or was it the other way around right Son- yeah. did Sonam like say can you use Jonathan because I don't think he I mean I know he's done a lot of film now but I don't know do you know no it, it's a not a ton not a ton certainly not like this yeah because yeah. then he will I mean I, I have been seeing his name more in the past whatever 10 years gotta 15. gotta get that paycheck Exactly. Uh, and I should say, just in case people don't know, Jonathan Tunick has been, was Sondheim's longtime orchestrator starting, I believe, in 1970 with Company. And one of the, can't talk like forever about Stephen Sondheim because we have other things to talk about. But if you're not familiar with his stuff, he has extremely harmonically dense music. And one of the things when you have harmonically dense music is that it's actually pretty difficult to assign those instruments in a way that it's going to sound good once you move it from a piano to an entire orchestra. And that is something that Jonathan Tunick was able to do so, so, so well in a way that maybe Sondheim wouldn't have been able to fully have the career that he had if he hadn't had Jonathan Tunick to really bring company Follies, Night Music, Sweeney Todd, Merrily, all those to, to life. Well, we can make another little connection here, of course, is that uh, George Hearn famously was Sweeney Todd, mm-hmm. or um, not originally, but originally enough to be filmed by PBS and mm-hmm. live forever on that amazing, I think, video of, of Sweeney Todd. So hearing him again here just made me smile. 
a lot. Yes, and George Hearn won the Tony for playing Robin Williams' character in La Cage aux Folles in 1984. No, for playing Nathan Lane's character. Sorry, yes, for playing Nathan yeah. Lane's character. Yes. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. Singing what became kind of an iconic act one curtain. I love those act one curtain numbers when they're good. And an iconic gay anthem. Absolutely. For for obvious reasons. Uh, okay. Do uh, do either of you want to talk about anybody else, or should we truck us along? I'm good, I'm good with people. Okay. Oh, and I should say this movie had a thirty-one million dollar budget, and then just absolutely smashed at the box office, one hundred and eighty-five million. So, really, really extremely well. Uh, not only that, but it was the highest-grossing LGBT movie for something like 25 years it held that record until <clears throat> bohemian rhapsody which came out what three <laughs> years ago something oh wow so, which yeah. i do not consider him and you know what i think i think yeah. that's robin williams i mean yeah. at the time now yeah. now yeah. we can talk all these other things but i don't right. think people would have gone in the Such door star power him yeah. without him yeah which is fine yeah. get him in get him in Yep. I think we can zoom through our next two sections here. So the next section is, why did we pick this movie? And I had texted Tammy and said, what movies do you want to do? And you sent me back a list. And I think they were all or almost all movies that we were interested in. But when I told Matt the list and he said that he hadn't seen The Birdcage, I was very interested in hearing what he <laughs> thought. So I sort of guided us towards that one. It's a great choice, too. I'm so glad we did it. I'm so happy. And I love how you're bringing up its relevance, happy or not happy to today. And, yeah. Um, yeah. and again, would... in the numbers, the people who want to see it. I mean, we're, we're in a, a, a world now, I think, again, or still, where I truly believe that most Americans want something differently than some of our representatives are suggesting. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I yeah, was thinking this thing, the entire time I was watching the film of how current it felt to me as I was watching it. It felt like it, it speaks to so much of what we're going through. It just felt like today. It didn't feel like a, a film that's from 1996. So, yeah. And then the last section before we take a break and get into the movie as if that hasn't been something we've already mm-hmm. been doing is if there, so Tammy, this is a section where if there's anything that we think would aid people in their initial viewing of this film and their first time viewing it, this is the time to say it. So a lot of times this is like making sure their settings are correct or any sort of like background information that they might have. I don't know that I really have anything for this section. I think you can probably just throw this movie on without knowing anything and be pretty good, but jump in if either of you have any, any advice for anyone. I think the only thing that I was reminded, and I don't think you need to know this, mm-hmm. but there are a lot of Bush jokes, as in Jeb Bush, as in right, Radio yeah. Bush, and there are a lot of Florida jokes at a time when um, I'm trying very hard not to think much about that state. Yeah, um, yeah. And you have to so. kind of jump into being in Florida. I mean, that's how I felt. Yeah, um, yeah. And that it was really fun. And um, the Kiwis do take a trip, a car trip in Florida that then Papa Kiwi waxes poetic about, which can't even go into it. it's it's so funny you have to watch because it shouldn't be funny and it's so funny watching gene hackman just list towns they drove through but uh, i would say weirdly that i know i don't think there's anything i think the beauty of the movie is that it is a comedy for the whole family i agree yeah and it, i 
it's one that I would show to my kids. I think it's uh, it's just a great film. It's a great uh, um, family friendly, uh, all ages kind of film, and that's I think is accessible by people across a broad spe spectrum of of like beliefs. I think that it's the, the kind of film that's going to appeal to a lot of different people. So everybody should just go watch it. So here's a question though that maybe one of you looked at. It occurred to me that it has an R rating. Yeah. And oh, does it? it does, I just didn't notice. We say fuck too many times, but I wonder if they made that choice in order to not get the R rating because of the gay content. Was that a thing then? It, it has I'm not sure. I yeah, I, I had the same question and I couldn't find the answer. Okay. But, but yeah, it does have an R rating, but I mean, I, it's no, great. Watch no, with your kids. I so, I mean, there's nothing I, I, I would suggest if they didn't say fuck, I would totally question. So I would hope they wouldn't yeah. have an R rating. I mean, that is literally the only, I mean, the only reason that I can imagine it has that rating is that they swear a lot, which makes total sense in the milieu in the world in which they live. Um, yeah. So, that was interesting. So, so there's that. I mean, there are some parents who are just going to not do it because they aren't going to do it. But other than that, I would think if you're like 12 and up, you know, 10 and up, mm -hmm. I must, I forgot this morning because I know the kids were watching. I clearly did too. I, when they were younger. Yeah. Okay. So we will take a break and we will see you on the other side. Okay, welcome back. We are gonna spoil the movie. If uh, if you had any anything that you were really concerned was going to going to happen in this movie, let's uh, let's go in order of how well we know this material, know the movie. So, Matt, why don't you kick us off? How did how did you find your viewing this time? Your first I, viewing. I loved it. Yeah, I loved it so much. I, it's a really funny movie, and I enjoy the performances a ton. Mm -hmm. The one thing that I was surprised by is how much, like, how much it affected me emotionally, mm -hmm. um, and scenes that I I assume were being played for laughs at the time period that they just made me cry, like uh, because I I connected with them. I I saw so much of experiences that I've been through uh, represented in this film. You know, this idea of having to like trying to perform in certain ways for uh, in certain scenarios and things like that. It's, it's, uh, it really connected with me a lot. And so uh, I loved it. I cried through a lot of it. I laughed through all of it and uh, I love this film a lot. I'm so glad we watched it. Yeah. I'll, I'll go next. So I, I guess I was actually a little trepidatious to watch this film because I knew like it's, whatever it is, 25 plus years old. And it's a com. I tend not to do super well with movies that are comedies. I'm not sure why, but I just don't laugh at them very much. Not the same way I do with TV shows where I get to know the characters and love the characters and I'll laugh uproariously. Uh, but then, so maybe about 10 minutes into the movie, there's the first moment. It's really the first farcical moment where uh, Robin Williams is talking on the phone and he goes to give the toast and he smashes his glass against the phone. And I'm watching this, Mary was out of town. So I'm watching this home alone. And I just let out the biggest guffaw in the world. 
And from then on, I was absolutely in this movie. I spent the whole week at work telling people like, have you heard of this movie, The Birdcage? It's so good. It's so funny. I laughed so much. I never laugh at movies. And they're like, we've seen that movie a million times. What's wrong with you? (laughs) I'd kind of, uh, the same thing. I mentioned it to a bunch of people at work and they're like, oh yeah, we see that. And I was like, how did I miss this film? And, And then the other thing is this is the first movie with Robin Williams that I've watched since he died. So th- that was pretty emotionally impacting. And so I spent a lot of time going between laughing and crying and laughing and crying just because I'm like, oh, it's, he's just such a monumental talent. And to see him with Nathan Lane, two really generational talents at the same time, like just felt great. So uh, that was my experience. Tammy, you've seen it a bunch, but how was it this time but i hadn't seen it for years okay, so yeah. um you know let me talk a moment about streaming since this is called streaming yeah yeah yeah. we, we got rid that. of our, our tv less than a year ago and now we have a billion streaming services and i thought to myself oh my god my tv watching will be intentional and there are times when i hate that because we used to have a thing we called presence when you would sit down and you just throw on tv and, oh, my God, this movie's on or that TV show's on or I mean, I can do that with Hulu sometimes now. But I think that's how I've seen The Birdcage. I think I've seen parts of The Birdcage oh, a lot over the past 10 years because I tend to put the TV on on a Saturday or Sunday if I'm if I'm home. And I just am like A and E, H and I, all those, those, you know, Turner, Turner Classic Movies, just all those those channels. Mm-hmm. I just flip between them. So um, I think I've seen part of it a lot. Watching it from beginning to end intentionally you know and really watching to pick things up i too was really moved to consider and reconsider all of the um work we're doing around gender id especially at the college and with the college students and um the whole idea of presentation in a moment because again it is a farce i'm so glad you keep saying that so along with um all of the amazing dialogue and music and relationship there's this physical comedy there's a moment where christine brancy's character opens the um when she tells about how she has had to do things on her own and she puts the bottle of champagne between her legs and mm-hmm. pops the cork and i was like oh, i love that, that scene brilliant moment that if you get it you get it and if you don't you don't and both are fine the movie keeps going <laughs> But I just like thought, oh, my God, you know, that one moment tells us who she is, you know, what what's, you know, what sort of what she how she is able to present as a as a feminine woman. And yet she's tough and she's got a masculine side because I do think the movie is playing playing with that. And they talk about, you know, who is the woman, you know, who is the wife, who is the woman questions that I think we don't. I'm sure there are people who consider, but I think we don't consider quite as much. Uh, we haven't talked at all about Hank Azaria's character. I don't think we need to forever. We can say Abu a couple times, which is what Hank Azaria talks about when um, there was a sequel that was being floated around. I thought it sounded like a great idea and he wouldn't be a part of it for reasons that are, of course, both maybe obvious or not, but totally sane, which is that um, he was playing a character wildly outside himself. Um, which is sort mm-hmm. of too bad. I think he probably could have played a character that might have connected to his heritage. I don't, that's a whole different discussion, um, whether people can play outside, but because he was playing a parody of a Hispanic person from a specific country. Guatemalan, um, yeah. 
that was, yeah, sort of, that, I think that was a problem, although he was hilarious. But um, so that resonated and I didn't even give that a second thought when I, I, I know I didn't. It was definitely the thing that I bumped on the most. And I knew going in that one of the reasons I was trepidatious was having at least two straight people playing gay people as something that like we would be very critical of now. And, but then I, I didn't bump on it for Robin Williams really at all because I mean, whatever, I'm a straight guy. So what do I know? But it just felt like he had so much sensitivity towards it and, and Hank Azaria, I really bumped much more on, yeah, the, his uh, no. whiteness. Yeah, that, there, there's a, there's definitely an issue there. I, you know, I never in my life ever thought Nathan Lane could possibly be straight. So I don't, I mean, even then, I don't, <laughs> sure I would have gone to fisticuffs saying he was gay. Oh, so, I, um, I meant Hank Azaria and Robin Williams. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, yeah oh, yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, this is another, another little sidebar long, you know, I think actors are should be actors and can play a variety of roles. That's 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 my thing. I mean, I just don't want anyone to lose a role because they're gay. But yeah, I personally am not going to take Robin Williams to task for playing a gay character, you know, as he did. I, so, but I, well, I he, others would. It's such a it's such a good performance that Robin Williams does as well. And this is one of the things that I was trying to think through after watching the film is that this film just would not have gotten the same, um, it wouldn't have been seen the same way if you didn't have Robin Williams, who was one of the biggest movie stars on the planet performing in it. And there was this interview with Oprah that Nathan Lane was on and Robin Williams was there and Oprah's trying to make him come out. She's like asking him uh, all these really difficult questions and Robin Williams at each point is, uh, as he's there defending Nathan Lane and jumping in and like distracting Oprah and kind of moving the conversation in a different direction each time. And these are the kinds of things with Robin Williams's performance that I really appreciated and the way that he looked at the performance uh, and the character that he was playing. I, di- I didn't feel like it was a caricature. I thought it was a nuanced character. And so those things I enjoyed about his performance in this film. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I totally agree. So, yeah, there you have it. Just that. Was there anything yeah. that, since you hadn't watched the film necessarily all the way through and however long, Tammy, was there anything about the arc that surprised you or anything about seeing it in its totality? They were like, oh, I forgot about this entire beat or anything like that? No, the two things, it was one of them is, is the, one of the things, scenes I really want to talk about. Okay. Um, in a different way, which is a shopping scene. Um, no, I have to say though, then, you know, a couple of days ago or last weekend, as with when I first saw it, I am horrified by the selfishness of the sun. That doesn't go away. That doesn't go it, away in the yeah. for me. It doesn't go that away in the story. I want to slap him upside of the head. And I, I think yeah. it's brilliantly handled because we watch how angry and how defensive Robin Williams gets. And it's interesting because at the heart of it, and so I'm the non-bio mom to my kids. So, I mean, I, 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 I'm on fire to these things, about these things, is that he doesn't say mama, it's auntie. That's part of the shopping scene. Um, Nathan Lane does. And that there is a sense that the son is asking his bio dad to do this for him. Um, and I know that's really the journey of the play. I mean, the journey of the play, I think, is, is that relationship. It's not mm-hmm. what happens with the Kiwis. The Kiwis are, I think, the 
the reason and the obstacles. But I think it's all about that boy growing up because I think his, frankly, his fiance is somewhat a couple steps ahead, um, except that she's anti-Semitic. So that hit me more than it did the first time around, a little bit more that she did that. Mm-hmm, and granted, yeah. they seem to have done everything because of out of fear for the parents. But I guess I don't this did not feel, and I remember in the 90s feeling like, why couldn't they be Jewish? I that was not a world that I sort of felt like, why, why tell that lie? Uh, that I, yeah, I didn't think that for a second. Cause yeah, that, that was, was not surprising to me. Yeah. Let's go ahead then and talk about our, our scenes that we have. So the first one is the shopping scene. So why don't you walk us through that, Tammy? Ah, so here's the thing. It, it feels like a tangential scene and I think it's unbelievably important. And I think people who watch it now it is, so when Nathan Lane's character, we, do you guys usually call them by character names as you go along or by actor names? I do whatever comes to my head first. So we okay. have to do yeah. less editing. That's fine. <laughs> Nathan Lane as Albert. So Albert, once he finds out that the son, um, Dan Fetterman's vow, is, um, is home, goes out early in the morning to um, get us make, make stuff for a special dinner. And as we watch him go down the street, this place where they've lived a long time, you see him saying hello and greeting street vendors. He goes in and out of shops. They know him. They they like him. They respect him. Um, the sense of community is grand. And there are a lot of people of color on the street. And I think it's made clear they're it's not they're not all gay people. Yeah. And yet, so they're in a community that is already really accepting and really loving and he's respectful to them as well right i mean you know and i just that scene seemed so important to me in a way that before it was just you know part of the milieu of setting up the story but when i watched it this time all i could think of was oh my god they created this community of mutual respect where they are known and everyone knows that they are a couple and i'd completely forgotten that albert has armand's last name yeah. They are mm. the Goldmans. He is, yeah, right. I mean, yeah. he's listed as Albert Goldman. He's never called something else because he has his Starina, you know, stage yeah. name. But I, so, I mean, they really set them up as a married couple who have roles, right? I mean, you know, kid, Albert is out shopping while Armand is home, kind of being served a weird coffee breakfast, reading yeah. the paper on the exercise bike, which I love. So no, that 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 was my first scene. I just was just so, and, and the fact that he calls himself Auntie, so that even in this community, which is so close, and the fact that it sounds as though Armand and Albert met very soon after Val was born. It, that's the feeling I get from the film. Yeah, yeah, yeah me too. That um, yeah. he's not he's not mom and he's not dad. He's he is a, from your auntie. And that everyone is fine with that. No sideways glances. I mean, that was obviously a choice, but I think a really strong choice. So that the fish out of water here is going to be the Keeleys. Yeah, well, and I think also because so much of it is, so much of the plot and the emotional plot hinges on the life that they've built being disrupted. I think showing that their life extends outside the home and extends to the community that they're in is is really important. What it reminded me of, I don't, I don't think Matt's watched it, but the, this exact scene basically happens, I think in the opening of Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And it made me 
Have you seen it, Tammy? Oh, yes. Yeah. So it made me wonder if it was something that it would not surprise me if this was a pet film of Amy Sherman Palladino. So I, I was like, oh, I wonder if she cribbed it from that. But the way he talks to the various yeah. vendors is the exact same way that Midge does. And I, w- I, I should have looked for a script because I was curious whether his, I don't remember what his joke is about the thing that he's sampling in the, oh, in the when store. Oh, and beckons. Yeah. When the schnecken beckons. I yeah. was curious if it was improv or not. It was. It was yeah, improv. That was. That, that's yeah. one that's noted of that a lot. That one, and we'll get to it, keep it all inside. Mm. Yeah. One of the things that happened with the improv, I think, from what I had read, was they made them keep the scenes tightly constrained, but then they would leave the camera rolling after the scene was over. So, yeah, there there are a couple places like that where I was like, yeah, I think that scene kept going on a bit. <laughs> yeah, interestingly... Uh, Mike Nichols, they rehearsed for two weeks, which to me sounds like nothing, but I understand in film is actually quite generous. Right. Because yeah. normally in film, like you just shoot it all out of order and you get your lines and you show up. And sometimes you're not even with your scene partners. You know, you're just hitting your mark acting off of whoever. Yep. Yep. <laughs> or sometimes not even whoever, just a little, a little bouncy ball. Yeah. <laughs> or a stick with the, you right. know, something yeah. on the end of it. Do you want to say anything about this scene, Matt, or do you want to, should we? No, I, I love the scene as well. And I love just seeing the community and seeing how, how accepted Albert and the Goldmans are in the community. And even that the, everybody in the community is asking like, oh, so how's Val, Val's, mm-hmm. you know, in town yeah. and all those kinds of things. I love that. Yeah. Right. And then it just, and the fact that he grew up in that community. Yeah, exactly. He's awful. He's awful. No, I'm sorry. Yeah. So. It has to be Dan Futterman because he's so damn cute. I just want to get a dozen, but <laughs> he's awful. Well, and it's one of those things where, so in the musical, he gets a song with Anne on my arm that really helps a lot of those story beats out because you see how much she means to him. And it, you don't excuse it, but it does, you do understand a little bit like, why someone would do a horrible thing if they're in love. And it does help his character out a little bit. I is... think that that's the reason here. So I'll tell something I don't like. I, I should have mentioned this on read. And I didn't like it the first time. I'm not sure why they had to keep them so young, except to make her parents bigger figures. Because yeah. as a parent, they're just too young to get married. Live together. <laughs> here, here, I'll, you know here's a here's a bungalow you can have live together do whatever you want to do do not do not get married quite yet and um so that's I, interesting so yeah. i wonder if that was the reason is to tie her to her parents and have that like it to me. yeah i got yeah. wrapped up in introducing the podcast and it's always weird with a guest but i was going to do a gag about how this movie is about a lifestyle that we cannot condone on stream it and it's destroying the sanctity of marriage and of course it's endorsing people getting young getting married too young <laughs> but that is that is that uh, is pretty young it, oh yeah it, it is definitely something that i thought about and was like one of the it, things it about me, the movie that aged it made me look up the romeo and juliet laws in florida because i was like mm, how's that working out because they uh, she says at the beginning she says we're getting married and we've been sleeping together for a year and i was like wait this is mathematically so she was 17 and he mm-hmm. was, you know, all of those things. Yeah. 
Not for a year. So, oh, yeah, no, I know those laws because of these yeah, here. Yeah. yeah, it's uh, that is interesting. And I don't know if that would fly today, actually. I mean, I think that, you know, in 96, there were enough people who were in their 30s and 40s who would have known people getting married when they were younger. But now everyone who's of your guy's age and older probably doesn't know barely anybody, at least not on a coast, who is getting married that young. I mean, some people do, but, you know, they're in college. It, it's really young, yeah. The the only other thing I did want to say about this scene, and it does kind of apply to the whole movie, is I went to school in Miami, and it felt very much like Florida. Nice. I had we had a family friend gay couple down in Key West, and so this scene in particular felt a lot like it felt being in Key West with them, um, where just everyone knows everyone. Obviously, Key West, I think everyone's gay in Key West. As soon as you get down there, it's like required. But so there's just no straight people allowed. Exactly. I'm, I'm gay in Key West. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. So the next scene, and this is this is a big one. This is prob- probably the most quoted scene or the most gift scene that I have seen is this rehearsal sequence where Nathan Lane, it, it opens with, a little piano arpeggio and then he sings the song that Sondheim wrote for wrote for the movie but you have Robin Williams coaching Nathan Lane through this performance and you see a little bit of strife between them and I love that you get to see their directorial relationship here and then it's sort of mirrored in the next scene that we're going to talk about but the the biggest thing that stood out to me because uh, Tammy, I rewatch all the specific scenes we're going to talk about before the podcast, and one of the things that really stood out to me, I know we had said how workmanlike most of the camera work is in this movie that they're really just letting the actors do the work, but there is one unbelievably subtle shot that I did not catch my first time on this first time watching, which is when. So it's after Val has come and is trying to talk to Robin Williams' character and Robin Williams gets up and he's delivering a monologue and directing. But at this point, we're not following them. So that's all voiceover and the camera zooms in on Val walking around and behind. And it is such a subtle, great shot that that says like, that yes, there's all this direction happening over here, but what we're really tracking now is Val and Val's Val's concern. Because of course we know what Val wants to talk to, wants to talk to him about. And then of course there is this famous improv sequence where Robin Williams does all of the different, all of the different choreographers. And I guess it always shocked me a little bit because I was like, do do theater Gentiles like know all of these people? I can't like, I kind of can't believe this became the most famous part of the movie. It's so interesting because I remember distinctly seeing it for the first time and like, just going like, Oh my God. It's like distilling to its essence. I mean, they were perfect. And I, as I understand it, I think the scene was not improv. The thing that was improv was his line and keep it all inside. Oh, yeah. really? Only the, the last line. Which is oh. pretty interesting. And I, to me, makes the scene. 
It does. And it's it because really does. Williams evidently said, I think some a director, is this right? Is this right, Maddie? A director said it to him once. That oh, he uh, was going off. And the director went up to him and like went, that Robin, you got it. That's it. You nailed it. Keep it all inside. Not only was it a director, it was Mike Nichols on the show that had done it earlier. And so that's why he added it. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, that's, yeah. Even yeah. that's even better. That's so. even better. That's even better. Oh, yeah. No, it's so. So the question then is, who came up with it? Right. Who on that set came up with it? I'm going to vote Jonathan Tuna because he was there. Um, maybe Mike Nichols. But it is. I mean, you're right. Choreographically. Yeah. Do people get it? He ended with Madonna. Maybe we just remember that. Maybe. I, I didn't get the choreographers when I saw it, but um, but so I didn't get that part. But I also still love the scene. Just uh, Robin Williams and his. I think it comes across the idea behind it, even if you don't necessarily understand all the nuance to it. I don't know if that makes sense. So, you know what it is? He's on oh, for good. Oh, I was just going to ask Matt. Do you did you know about this moment from this movie before you saw it? Had you heard? I, I didn't know it was from this movie, but I've seen the gifts of this. It's the one thing in the film that I've seen gifts right. of. Um, so when it happened, I was like, "Whoa, déjà vu." I've seen that that image before, but also I've only seen gifts of it like moments and not the whole thing all put together. So, right. Uh, so that was cool. So I I'm in like a. A superhero movie discord for a, a superhero podcast and so when i had said in there that i uh and actually one of the co-hosts of that is going to guest on the show in i don't know three or four episodes i think and so when i had said i was watching this movie someone sent that gif and i asked people like do you know who someone i think said fossey 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 and i said do you know who bob fossey is like what does that mean to you and there one of them answered uh I think he's a director choreographer and I think his work is vaguely sexual. And does he have a connection with Liza Minnelli? Um, oh, and they also said, and there was the FX show Fosse Verdon a few years ago. I was like, well, yeah, I guess you nailed it. <laughs> and what, what else is there to know? But, um, but I, I didn't know. That I stuff. think he's the most famous of the ones that are, that is not Madonna. Oh, certainly. Out, yeah. I mean, outside of, yeah yeah who would know because who uh, well Twilight yeah i Barb? guess people i was gonna say people know martha graham but not from maybe not i don't know i'm married to someone who like studied martha graham so yeah and they uh, might know the name but not necessarily who she is yeah isn't she the one who arranges flowers in the middle of tables is that martha graham? <laughs> <laughs> but michael kidd i think is the deepest cut even though yeah. I guess he did the most movie choreography. Right. But you might not know him. I know him for that. I just thought that was so great. Yeah. I think the thing too, that that shows off so beautifully is the specificity you need for comedy. Cause I have heard people talk about sort of uh, over and over again, how wild Robin Williams is. And yeah, I'm like, no. Oh, you know what? I actually would never use that word because the thing about, that kind of physical comedy is that it's specific and constrained it's energetic so it might feel big but it's never loose it doesn't i mean i've seen him not do great Mm -hmm. i mean all comics you know and it's usually when things are loose you know when they're really constrained like that and tight and just move which is why that last line works so well because it's it's got the tap it's the button and I don't, I don't know if you intended for us to talk about this 
Tammy, but the in the middle of the rehearsal scenes is is the scene between him and Val up in the room where you know they're having the the conversation. And I was really struck. So he he does have the line where he says, I'm not gonna pretend to be someone who I'm who I'm not. And of course that hits so hard. And especially when you're seeing uh, it hits now, hits hard now with the don't say gay bill, but also like we've seen the life that they've built and there's so much unspoken of like, I've worked hard to have the life that I want to have and I don't want to give it up. I'm, I'm sorry about that. But he says that more than once. Mm -hmm. And I believe that in a screenplay this tight, that that's not lazy writing. It's needed yeah. repetition from a group of people who have to fucking say it over and over. Mm-hmm. And over. Yes. Yeah. You know, and now we've seen, you know, I think, I think we've seen the African-American community come out and basically, you know, say we have BLM because we have to keep saying it. So, I mean, William says it because he says it later. He says it at, when um, right before the, um, the bus stop scene, um, when he goes off to go to go with his toothbrush, that he he says it again. You know, because I love him and he's hurting because, you know, I think we're told, I think we're necessarily told things in the audience a little more than I needed. I remember thinking that and I thought it again, but the complete right amount for the public that they were playing to know your audience. He wanted the whole damn country. Yay. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think it's one of those things that if it were a drama, it would feel overwrought and it would feel like they're pounding us over the head, but it's not, Mm -hmm. it's a, it's a comedy. And so like, we're not really spending a bunch of time thinking about that because we're really just trying to catch our breath from laughing so hard. And there was one particular delivery in this scene that Robin Williams had that I was just like, uh, I felt like I could see his acting chops, like not just his comedy chops. And it's when it's right after he says that and Val says, but you did do that one time. And he's like, when was that? When you took me to school and you told me if she asks whatever he says, lie lie to her. And Robin Williams says, yeah, but that's because she was a small-minded idiot. And he says it with no vitriol. No, it's not, I think a lot of, actors would have delivered that line trying to get the like punch down or the bitchiness comedy but for him it's it wasn't that it was very understated and it was just truth it was like there was no no mustard on it no mustard no, and on the I line. Think if i recall the next line he says was and you were a child yeah which is really important because my problem with Val, no Val's journey mm-hmm. is one of growing up and, and, and toward maturity. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I mean, we can just, you know, jump to the moment when he says and puts out his hand, no, this is my mother. And I cried, I will cry now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and this is my mother. And then puts out his hand again to shake the hand of his bio mom, of his birth mom. And she graciously, again, beautifully directed. She, she's lovely and beautiful. And, and the way she says, hello. So no, I, yeah. I yeah. I totally agree with you. Uh, you're making me cry already right now. I know. Uh, it's like, I, I, as I was watching this, one of the things that was coming to me was just this like fear that I have of my kids. Like if my kids acted like, like Val in this film and <laughs> I was just so mad at him. I'm like, why are you doing this? You're torturing, you're torturing your parents just because just for appearances. And 
Yeah. Well, so except I think they set it up pretty well that it's not just for appearances. And yeah. because at the end, she she's asked to leave with them and she's going to leave with them. I mean, let's not forget that she's walking out the door to, to say goodbye to the love of her life, to be with her father who needs her. Cause her mother says your father needs you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, yeah. and actually the only line in the play, I hate how many lives we have to ruin, which I, or he says, which I am like, she didn't ruin any lives, but that's an interesting. I mean, it's interesting because they never had to resolve yeah. that because we go somewhere else. But I, I do think they set that up and that's where their youth, I guess is forgiven, except that's where I have a problem with it. So I just, yeah. I kind of put that aside as just uh, gas for the machinery and the machinery works really well. And I don't always like the gas. Yeah, yeah I, I agree with you. Yeah. It, it's something that I knew was like baked into the plot. So it was one of those things that it didn't, it didn't really affect my enjoyment of the film too much. Although I was able to recognize like this would not work in the same way in a movie made now they, they would have to have to judge this a bit more to make him seem not quite so monstrous yeah i think the thing too is that i think they were able to create characters that we could kind of laugh at and yet believe because i think that's the only way a film mm-hmm. a story like this works you know yes there are people like that and yes we do have to sort of laugh at them even though they're they're not very laughy you know and that worked. I mean, they sort of talk as though the moral majority was still a thing and it really wasn't that late, but we can all, you know, remember it. I want to bring up something quickly that is just a fatal flaw. And I think there are almost none in this film, but I'm going to bring one up. Mm-hmm. The whole dinner scene is pretend is based on the fact that there's really no dinner and he's not really a cook. And they live above a, a kitchen <laughs> which they own they own that kitchen that is their kitchen they couldn't even if the even though the, the i mean what good. what i think might have been good is that they talk earlier about the fact that the food's pretty crappy there that's not why people go there mm-hmm. so that's true i think it could have all been fixed with a line about the fact that no we eat better than, than our baby we, we just need one line yeah. yeah but we don't have that so they couldn't call down for six steaks i mean it's anyway that that's all that was just one little thing i did not think about that if we're i was going to mention and clean up but if we're talking about there was only one thing in this movie that really did not work for me and it's that i found uh robin williams scene with christine baranski to be so unforgivably thoughtless and cruel when he knows that alban is or it's not what's his name in this when he knows that yeah albert is hurting and jealous and i I was i was just like this it it felt a little too unbelievable for me for someone who seems so caring and so um it felt it was too long i kind of felt it was too long yeah they opened the champagne i thought this again you're absolutely right zach they opened the champagne and then she's looking at his chest and all i could think of was okay wait now you've drunk so much that that's going on, yet you're the driver back. Uh, yeah, no, I agree. I, I don't want to leave without sort of touching on the the bus stop scene and the teaching to be straight scene because oh, yeah, yeah. the line, well, the line well, I just didn't think John Wayne walked like that has got to go down in history as. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness, that yeah. scene was so great. Not to uh, mention, let's let's, not let's to mention betrayed, bewildered, which we say at our house all the time, every time 
something bad happens. Well, how do you feel? Betrayed, bewildered. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about the the teaching to be straight scene. One of, I mean, this is where the far, other than Hank Azaria's physical comedy, which is impeccable through the entire movie, this is the place where the farce really gets to, gets to shine. Well, and like all good farce, it's based in this reality. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we don't believe that Nathan Lane's really trying and that some of the, and some of the observations you know, are sort of right, then it's just, then it's just not going to work. Yeah. And it does. So I, yeah, I just find the whole eating. The Men smear. The, Men smear. <laughs> the way he says it. The, yeah. Yes. And he has so much pride in his recognition of that tiny sliver of heterosexuality that he's able to tap into. Well, and just the, when he, when he talks about the dolphins, his whole physicality, the way he's leaning on the tree, he's taking up some some man space, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, he's physically taking up more space. And um, uh, one thing he rattles off a series of stuff that I mean, I follow football a little bit, but I have no idea. That <laughs> um, he's on the thirty and the butter blah, blah, and butter blow. How do you feel? How how would you feel? Betrayed, bewildered. <laughs> yeah. Also, honest. I don't really buy the punch scene that happens next. It's funny for a second, except, except mm. that Armand is actually so freaked out and on edge that he's actually not acting the way he usually acts. I, I did buy that. Yeah. But, yeah. um, but I like how nice that guy is, that big guy. Hey, I'm sorry. Hey, you bumped it. No, you bumped into me. I, just, <laughs> <laughs> I, do, I do really love that. I do. Really, yeah. I just love going from that to, 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 to the walking. Well, and also just the idea that people who are intensely comfortable in their body, um, who are not working within someone else's parameters, can't just jump to that. Yeah. And this is the this is the moment, I think, where if this were Robin Williams, I don't think this movie would work. I don't think it would work on the emotional level that it works on now. Nathan Lane mm-hmm. is able, exactly what you just said, is able to sell that moment. I mean, Robin, we all know Robin Williams has the gifts that he has, but I don't think it would have been the same. Nathan Lane does such a good job. Oh. And the their interplay when he puts on the hat, I, what is I think he says, nice oh. touch. Yeah. <laughs> And he says it genuinely, the way you were saying that he, you know, talks about, yeah, that's where the love comes through. Yeah. For sure. And you get um, to see their working relationship. You get to see that, like, he is able to criticize him as a director does and a director has to, and it's not, per- thank you note. You know? <laughs> oh, I shouldn't well, raise I, my pinky. Yeah. I, I, and what I always love that you're a great actor. I'm a great director. I'm like, you know, this is how we lived our life. I mean, the, you know, the fact is, I doubt they're the only drag show in town. I mean, they've built up through hard mm-hmm. work and their artistry and their skill and their craft, a, a really big going enterprise, which um, I sort of wanted to point out. I was really thinking about, about this is that their audience is almost all straight. Right. Yeah. The Kennedys, and maybe that's a thing, mm-hmm. you know, there, but this is not, you know, entertainment for their gay community. This is a living for a wider audience that comes to laugh. I mean, it really hit me actually, maybe just because of other things I'm doing right now, but it really hit me about, you know, white people going to hear African-Americans, 
you know, in, in Harlem and where, you know, your entertainers and servers are one color and you're another. And I kind of thought, not that I'm necessarily comparing, yes, I am comparing, the, the, the event itself, not the people involved, but necessarily, but the event that these straight people are having anniversaries and they're coming to not just laugh at, but to, you know, adore these performers who stay behind the footlights. So they're over there. Mm-hmm. And um, again, in, in contrast to the shopping scene, I just, yeah. And I'm assuming that that's a reality. I assume so. You know, yeah. One of the things I loved about this scene is just like, I've been through many situations in my life where I've tried to figure out how you're supposed to do that heterosexually. Like how, how does it, how do men, do that and trying to like break it down because it because of the performance that's involved with it and i love that line i didn't realize that's how john wayne walks not only because it's funny and the <laughs> walk is funny but also john they have the same walk nathan lane and john wayne and john wayne is this pinnacle of masculinity mm. and the way that it reveals just the the this idea of even John Wayne's performance of masculinity masculinity is kind of a form of drag, right? It's a, it's a performance. It's a mask that's being put on and the way that's being, being analyzed through that comedy, I found really insightful. Yeah. Do we know if that line, I didn't realize that was how John Wayne walked. Do, do, do we know if that was scripted or, or improv? I believe it is scripted because it's in the original French film, I believe. Ah, so, and it's in the middle. But yeah, yeah. So John Wayne being the, which makes sense. I mean, that we're gonna take, and and not only John Wayne on film, but John Wayne in in as a person. Um, a- you know, and I think in screen, script writing, they keep coming back to it. I mean, that one of the last lines in the film is Bob Dole is gorgeous. Yeah, says one of the drag queens, right? I mean, mm-hmm. sort of just taking us back to, you know, this wide world that you know, that's, that they're inhabiting the, um, can we, can we go to the bus stop scene? for just Yeah, a moment? I, I think so. Yeah. Okay, cool. I have to watch the time a little bit. Okay. Yeah. yeah. The uh, palimony scene is a word that I barely know, but basically their marriage contract. I think that putting that exact, that particular scene and making it a legal contract was such a deliberate, concrete decision of, perhaps both of them, maybe just Wayne May, at that time that they wanted something legal because you can love someone to death and watch everything that you've worked for go somewhere else. So I just thought, I thought the way it was written is beautiful. We know, you know, you know, when they say, you know, everything I have is yours and we get the feeling like, you know, Ethan Wayne's character, you know, Albert has really nothing, you know, and then it's like, you know, and then the response of, of course, half of it, take all of it. You know, there's no, there's, there, I have nothing without you. I just, I just thought that was so beautiful. And I love that it was set in that transitory, a word we love now, but it's a great word, liminal space Mm -hmm. at a bus stop, you know, not in their cozy place, kind of out in public, you know, kind of on the canal where they're just the idea of a journey being in the middle of the journey and them um, making this decision. And that it is a legal contract, which is the thing that they have to sort of work around. I just thought it was important. I saw some criticism of this scene that was like, this is supposed to be the big moment that they've been together 20 years and they're just now figuring out this legal document. 
And it really kind of made me a little annoyed because I felt like it missed the point that the whole thing was that Robin Williams' character was, I think there's a line where he asks him about it earlier in the movie. Percy. And yeah, Robin Williams is supposed to be the one who's figuring it out. And yeah, the surface level view of that is like, he took so long to figure it out. And that's really like rude and selfish of him. But then when you find out that he has, as you said, he has nothing. So he was being the generous one. He he was the one who was at risk for not figuring it out. And Nathan Lane doesn't, his character doesn't have the, doesn't care to figure this stuff out. That That's something that. Well, and he doesn't own anything, right? I mean, right, you know, the yeah. fact that Serena might be a star and might've been a star somewhere else, but hasn't, right? I mean, if you look at that, like, I never left here to take a gig outside of, I mean, all those conversations that we don't hear that we all know they would have had if they were real people. I think that's really important. I also think that, that the fact they haven't done it yet, to me, for one thing, this is a story in which you're telling the story and, and the inciting. Right. Yeah, of coming. course. But beyond that, they're getting older. And I think we oh, sort yeah. of see that. That I don't know, you know, I mean, I'm really happy my kids have insurance all the time. When I was in my 30s, I never had insurance unless I happened to work for a place that had insurance. You know, you get older and you start to have different priorities. And it's not that either of them is dying, but they're getting older. And so I, I guess I kind of bought that, that, um, they, should, that they should do it. Not to mention, uh, I, yeah, the fact that he's had it and they, he just hasn't brought it up, I think, to me, um, maybe needs to be justified the fact that he's just got his hands full all the time with everything. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like so, you haven't put off something in your relationship you should have done 10 years ago. Like, come on. <laughs> so, and I think that your point about them getting older is also justified by this moment where they talk about the graveyards. Mm-hmm. And I found that to be a really sweet moment as well, where he says, you know, that graveyard's really ugly and I hate it, um, which is... <laughs> a shitty graveyard. <laughs> yeah, but but that's where I want to be buried with, so uh, buried so that I never miss a laugh. And I yeah. just, I found that one so touching, that line. Oh, yeah. No, I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you. It's a great, and a great way to talk about, about as much in the future as we can get, which is when 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 they're dead and that that's the thing you know i think the two things that scare all of us the most are hospital visits and you know sort of post-death stuff you know people who've lost the home they've lived in you know i mean and that's slightly better now but at that point you know it was awful awful and you know that's one of those things during covid that you know was that more people got to unfortunately and horribly understand what it's like to be told no you can't go back there yeah no you can't i and i fell down i fell down one boom a few years ago and ended up at harborview and um, when my wife came in and it was after we were married although frankly it doesn't matter but it did uh, an administrator actually asked you a proof and thank god there was someone else who was senior because really i mean zach you carry around proof that you're married no there's no proof <laughs> There's no proof, you know, it was just like, yeah, it's right what? here on my yeah. finger. Exactly. Yeah. Which I think she sort of, you know, probably did. Um, we do carry around our old cards, which are the domestic partnership cards, because you actually got a laminated card mm. signed by Gary Locke, which is meaningless. But I, I carry it around just because I, you know, I don't know. I don't want icky stuff to happen. But so, you know, it's at heart, this is a light, beautifully written movie about an unbelievably important subject that we've said now over and over 
could become incredibly important again. Mm -hmm. But I would love to touch on the end because I think that in true far style, they went over the top for how much our deus ex machina is going to help. All the families are at the wedding, which is a, which is, you know, there's a rabbi and a minister and in, in, in in the quickest ceremony ever with, you know, all of the conservative people on one side and all the drag queens on the other side and everybody looking fabulous. And, um, I thought that was a wonderful, you know, when truth is all out, good things happen. Moral of that story. This is, uh, I think this is our first Jews that we've covered on the podcast. I couldn't think if we'd we'd had any other any other Jewish characters. That's because so you're not doing Broadway shows where you can do the shows without the Jews. Of course, that's right? true. That's true. No many songs. <laughs> and you know what? Wow, I I'm going to go back over your list and see where um, where that might have. Yeah, I was trying to think. I don't. And are Nichols and May Jewish? Oh, you know, I don't know. Because it, it was interesting because here because I was sort of thinking about, you know, okay, here, so these straight people, I don't know if they're both straight. I think they are. I think I've read that before. I think they are as well, yeah. As we were talking about this, and I think I've written pretty astutely, but of course they would have lived completely their entire adult and pre-adult life with Jewish gay people surrounding them, the two of them. And um, yeah, one of my favorite moments that we can talk about is when Nathan Lane's character talks about all the different ways that the name is said and that they never really know who they are. And mm-hmm. so they yeah, yeah. It's a, a cold domain. <laughs> Mike Nichols is Jewish. He was born to yes. a Russian Jewish immigrant family. It makes and total sense. Hank Azaria, yeah. of course, is also Jewish. Yes. Uh, New York Jews, I, I think. New York Grecian Jews, I think. Elaine May is also Jewish. They're everywhere. And they probably got their start in the Catskills. So, yeah. I mean, you know. <laughs> and, well, you know, and I, we did do I'm Jurassic Park and Spielberg is Jewish, but he Judaism is? doesn't. No, I he, oh. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right. Uh, Zach doesn't get the joke for 1,000. Yeah, let's, <laughs> let's uh, move into cleanup here. We've covered a lot of stuff, so I don't have a ton left. Um, but I do just have two lines that obviously meant something a lot different now than they would have at the time. And one, there are two times in this movie where Robin Williams refers to committing suicide. Uh, one of them is his dad when he's in the suit. And the other is, oh, at the top of the movie, when he says, if we don't finish making up, I'm going to kill myself. And that that hit me pretty pretty hard this time. Wow! Didn't even yeah. I remember in the suit. I look like my grandfather. Is that one? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then yeah, I guess that doesn't actually hit me as something that did not jump out. But now that you say it, you know, to uh, let it be said, he 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 killed himself, as I understand it, beginning an awful 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 downward. Um, fall into a, a pretty bad disease yes yes uh, and, I, and i know he had depression as i understand it he had depression stuff but i i find not that there's ever reasons are good or bad but i always find it to be really mitigating that oh i'm not if i made it seem like i was assigning blame to him or anything like oh, that, oh god no no, no 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 just that it resonated um the and i believe the disease i don't have its name in front of me but i believe it 
is linked with cognitive impairment. So I think it also may have been cause, or there's some thought that it may have been causal as well. So, ah, well, I it's think. also linked with, you know, like memory loss and paranoia and delusions and anxiety and all of those kinds. It's but called it, Louis bodies disease. Yeah. Oh, I had no idea. So yeah, no, no, Zach, not at all. Just, just that it didn't even, I mean, that's a, that's just a phrase that I, um, I have to think sometimes to not use it. It just doesn't hit me as, as being a, 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 a yeah. yeah. I'm not sure that it would for me if it wasn't Robin Williams. Uh-huh. And, and then the other one, of course, is when she's saying that, or he's saying that he's marrying Republicans and he says, you're not marrying Nazis, are you? And now it's like, well, is there a line? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we're so. we're going to debate whether or not there's a line there. So. Well, I have to say the whole description of candy and that 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 whole thing that happens with the young prostitute. Oh yes, right, yeah. The, the underage black girl. I mean, as that, yeah, that um, that was just over quick. <laughs> I mean, I literally just went, oh, I don't, can't spend one more second on this. Please, please go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's move on. Let's move on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Out the and into that car. True. <laughs> yeah, it's. I thought it was interesting how. I was thinking of the time period and I was under the assumption or I was operating under the assumption that they were trying to make uh, Senator Keeley look like a, like a, like a caricature of a more extreme version of a Republican Senator. And I just think he would fit right in and be a little bit on the moderate side in the current Republican party now with all those things he does, it's just, it's, there's people in the Republican party now that are so far beyond any of the things that the wild things that he says in this film that he'd just be right in the middle. Uh, yeah. The, I know Tammy, you've, you've got to get to rehearsal. So do we, Oh yeah. Nobody's, nobody's here yet. Nobody's, nobody's there um, yet. A line that we say around our house a lot from this movie is don't add, just take away. (laughs) I wrote that one down in my notes. Yeah. (laughs) Very, very good. Hey, that's what David does when he's editing the podcast. That's true. As far as I know, actually, I don't normally listen to the final cut. I just trust him. He sounds a lot like you. So I (laughs) (laughs) do you have anything else, Maddie? Um, The only other thing that I uh, thought was interesting is this moment at the end when they're going back through the club, sneaking out and this moment where Gene Hackman uh, is jealous of oh, everyone yeah. getting asked to dance. And he's like, I, I'm the only girl not da- dancing. And I just, I like that line. So that went in Diane and Diane Weiss. So, yes. So good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm talking like a man now. Hey, uh, I've never danced with a man behind before. And I'm looking at that guy going, really? But <laughs> I mean, it, it shouldn't, the generosity that they extend to these horrible people should not really go without without mention and uh, another thing that's a little like certainly through a modern lens i'm like these assholes don't deserve this you know but you got to end the movie somehow (laughs) can we just go with the fact that the moral of the story is that that act of generosity leads to that wedding yeah yeah i mean you know that's a one-to-one you know correspondence and i think that that is is really important really important it was interesting because my wife, my daughter, who was watching me, whoever was watching with me, sort of said, they never kiss. The end. The bride and groom don't kiss. They're about to. 
and uh nathan lane's character does a big you know and then then it goes still and i thought that was really interesting actually which means there's no kissing because the guys don't kiss and i wonder if there was a slight nod to like you know what nobody's gonna kiss maybe yeah the um that makes sense do you remember when the straight couples weren't marrying because they weren't going to marry until this happened around 20 when was it whatever 2015 seven no oh I don't know. <laughs> right, but in the couple of years leading up to marriage equality yeah. happening, there were a bunch of straight couples who were like, well, we're not getting married. And yep. at least every gay person I knew who was like, you should just get married and <laughs> get married and then go vote and do whatever <laughs> you can. To, like, uh, Do you have anything else, Tammy? Or should we? No, we had, we had, oh, I mean, you know, I talk about every single line. And I really, really, I thank you so much. I really love this film. I, um, you know, we, we didn't talk about Sondheim enough. I do, I, uh, Robin Williams dance much better than I expected. I watched that scene twice, yeah. uh, which was very, very cool. And I love that. I love Love is in there anyway. I thought him singing Foxtrot was a brilliant choice. Whoever was making those choices, mm-hmm. was Mike Nichols going, I remember this song. I love the um, Judy, all the Judy Garland stuff. There were two references. Um, there's that outfit. And then um, later she comes out as the hobo. He comes out as the hobo. Mm-hmm. I don't think I noticed awesome. those. Which was, yeah. I thought was really great. And, you know, again, kind of people who kind of, you know, know that part of the audience would just be, yeah. you know, gleeful. The, so the the first song, Can That Boy Foxtrot, that's a song that's cut from Follies. And at least in the most recent, one of the most recent Sondheim documentaries, I, I mean, the joke of the song is she's singing about this guy and it's, oh, can that boy f- foxtrot? And, you know, Sondheim was like, yeah, the song just didn't work because once you get that joke, there's nowhere else for the song to go. But it is such <laughs> a good, it is such a good joke for a drag performance. <laughs> just like, and they don't do the title of the song. So if you don't know what right. it is, you and don't, you don't say, know. what is the title of that song? That is the title of the That song. is the title, yeah. But that's they terrible. That's the reason that's the reason that Tits and Ass from the chorus line is called Dance Ten Looks Three. Well, yes, but the it wasn't the title in the program was the reason he oh. didn't put it in the show. It's because you had to have mm. more verses after that. No, no, I know. I, I do get that. But um, but yeah, yeah, I just thought that was I I thought that was great. And you know, Nathan's got a great voice. I mean, mm-hmm. he's yeah. a lot of specialty character stuff singing, but had he done Guys and Dolls by now? Uh, I because th- hmm. he played he played nicely, right? Or you played Nathan? He was Nathan. Okay, I think. I don't that know. That was in '92, so yes, he had done it. '92, okay. Okay, yeah. Oh, and I also did want to mention we talked about that opening tracking shot, mm-hmm. but how smart it is that the movie opens with We Are Family and you think you're in a rom-com and it's just like the song for the mood. And then it turns out it's a diegetic song that they're lip syncing to. And that is, I thought that was so clever and so smart. And I didn't notice until I was watching on headphones, but there's a really nice sound design where when the camera enters the club, the sound of the music changes to sound like it's diegetic. Well, that's cool. I love that. Yeah. Also, um, cool. that, that the lyric, uh, We Are Birds of a Feather, is actually in that song. I had to look it up. Oh. They didn't put it in. Well, that's and that was the original title of the movie. Oh, yeah. Cute. I think that would have been closer to the original title. 
I think the birdcage works metaphorically in so many great ways. Yeah, I agreed. So many great ways that that is the name and it's also what they're caught in and it's what mm-hmm. their son puts them in and being let out. And then I hadn't even thought about what it. What do you do? Oh, yeah. I thought that I've was- lived with the title yeah. for so long. I just didn't think about it critically until right now. It's fun. Okay, so let's go ahead and wrap up. Thank you, Tammy, for joining us. I meant to say at the top of the show, you're one of the first people who I learned how to like think about and talk about plays and movies from. So it's really cool to have you on and, you know, be able to do it with you here on the podcast. Thank you so much for asking me. I um, tell a story about a, a young man who must have been 14 or 15 who made me read a book. And people will say, he didn't really make you read a book. And I said, well, actually he did. And maybe <laughs> next time I'm on, we could talk about Ender's Game. <laughs> what, because what I the... did read it and then loved it. Um, so thank you. Thank you for having me on. Maddie, really nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. I've heard a lot about you because uh, Zach talks about you actually a lot. And you, I've been friends with Zach for 15 years and I have heard about you. I can't even count the number of times. So it's a it's a pleasure to, to, to have met you. You can't see me blushing. You guys are really on top of this. This is a great podcast. <laughs> oh, no, I, love, I love that you talk about context and culture um, and then get into the weeds about the film. So thank you. Yeah. Thanks. And we'll, we'll have to do this again. So if you want to send us feedback, you can find me on Twitter. I am at Zvazda, Z-V-A-Z-D-A. And you can find Matt at O-R-A-Y-M-W. Uh, and do you want to share Twitter, too, Tammy? I don't know if you're on Twitter or not. Or I am any not social on media. Twitter. No, I'm not. It's probably I'm a good choice. And I like media, but never the twain should meet. Okay. And if you want to send us longer form response, you can shoot us an email at podcaststreamit at gmail.com. And we would love to hear from you there. And so we will do a closing question here quickly. I don't know if you've ever made it to the end of a podcast, Tammy, but it's sort of just a little Easter egg we throw in for anyone who listens all the way to the end. And so Matt doesn't know what this question is either, but my question for the two of you is if one of your kids was marrying someone wait i have to make sure i get the question right one of them is got it if so one of your kids is getting married and they are saying to their fiance my mom my dad is coming over we have to hide this from the apartment from the house otherwise they will not let me marry you what is that thing that they have to hide from the apartment that they want me to hide or that they have to hide? They want no, me to hide. They, they have to hide. So if you see it, you're going to say, Taya, you cannot marry this human. Oh. He has like a MAGA hat on the wall and you're like, you cannot marry this human. Yeah, I, that's that's where I was going. That's where I was yeah. going probably. Uh, so, I don't know if I could think of anything, Matt. Yeah. Uh, the, the one I always tell my kids is, you know, it's a, I will accept, you know, them with whatever they choose to do with their lives and whoever they choose to be, unless they choose to be a police officer. And then, you know, that's, uh, uh, I don't know if we can be together anymore. So, <laughs> yeah, so. I don't know. The mega hat might've, might've done it. That, 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 that might've just hit it right there. I stole your answer. I mean, mine's very easy. Like if we go over there and there's any Yankee memorabilia, we're out of there. <laughs> Okay, 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 okay. I have to say, I think if there was too much horror stuff. Too much horror stuff? 
Yeah. I mean, like, yeah. you know, because my kids actually do like horror, but if there was just like Freddy's and, and <laughs> masks and, you know, things, I think, I think that might actually make me wonder a little bit. Um, along the same lines, if there's a lot of mounted like animal heads on the wall, oh, yeah. just like, I don't know, I don't know how I feel about this. Well, my wife would would not go in there. The <laughs> animal heads can go hand in hand with the horror. Uh, a lot of times, they show up in the horror film. Yeah, I think, I think, I think active hunters. That mm-hmm. would mean we're getting we're getting too long of this now. Sure, that yeah, would, guns uh, displayed on the wall. All right, so thanks a lot, everyone, for hanging out, and we will talk to you next time. Bye. 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 Thank you.